policy. You know, our, our representatives hear all the time from people who don't like foreigners, mm -hmm. but they rarely hear from those who say, yeah, yeah, we really like the refugees in our community. Or, oh, you know, I'd happen to know some immigrants working at my school, and they're really good people. Mm -hmm. You know, people don't take the time to write that. You know, they write about the, all the nasty yeah. stuff. You know, so, so taking the time to, you know, in these community forums, what are you doing for refugees and immigrants? You know, we're... Um, so I think there are things that can be done on that level. And on the personal level, you know, just befriending or talking or smiling at immigrants and refugees, I think, is, is a great start and finding opportunities to get to know them. That's Beth Ferris, a lifelong humanitarian working directly with refugees as a commissioner of the Women's Refugee Commission. Yeah, this is big time. This is uh, one of those interviews I was super nervous for because I was sitting down with a really important person uh, with a, a lot of wisdom who has been through a lot. She is a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Studies Program at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., as well as an adjunct associate professor in Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. That is a mouthful. <laughs> I'm just big mountain skier and adventure, Lindsay Dyer. <laughs> Who am I? And this is the Showing Up podcast. Exactly. Who am I to start these conversations in real person, in real persons, in real time, with real humans making a life in the outdoors to inspire the unicorn in you to embrace your weird, do the thing, even if you suck at it, and fully show up for this one wild and precious life. I had the chance to sit down with Beth and tell you Telluride at Mountain Film a few weeks ago. Being that the issue of refugees is on the forefront of our media right now, and we're seeing imagery of kids being ripped from their families, I wanted to talk to a professional about what's really going on and what can be done. To address that specific question, I asked Beth a follow-up question via phone, and that answer and her thoughts on what's going right now, what's going on right now, will be on my social media. This conversation ranges from her start in human, humanitarian work to environmental disasters, which displace people all over the world, from drought to sea levels rising and their impacts on communities. Beth is on the forefront of getting government agencies to be able to be prepared for these disasters and finding future and current solutions. I'm honored to have had the chance to sit down with her. I was truly inspired not only by her professionalism, but also the fact that she is a mother and of wife uh, who recently lost her husband. Uh, she is very human, and I hope that you can take something away from this conversation like I did. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay, hi everyone. My name is Beth Ferris. I'm a professor at Georgetown University, but I've done lots of different things in my life. So many things. I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Yeah, could you just list off the things that you're most active in right now? Right now, I'm very active on the global level. The, the, the world, the international community is negotiating two new global compacts or agreements on refugees, and so I'm involved in a lot of those negotiations. I also spend a lot of time with students and young people trying to help those who want to go into the humanitarian world, how to get in feet in the door, how to think about careers, families, all of those issues. So I spend a lot of time on that as well. And that's exactly why I wanted to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Where did you get the inspiration to tackle such a monumental problem that seems to never have a solution? You know, most of my life I've worked with refugees, um, but it didn't start out that way. I, I, you know, went to college, got a good degree. Where did you grow up? I, well, my dad was in the Navy, so he moved every two years. Okay. It's always hard to say where I'm from. I think of myself as being from Texas. But, but anyway, I went, went away to college. I had a great experience there. I went to Duke. I got a, a degree in history, which I loved. And then I couldn't find a job. So I just stayed in graduate school. I mean, they were paying me. I could afford it. I liked to study. So I went ahead and got a doctorate. 
And then I realized pretty soon that I really didn't much like the traditional academic world, at least for, for professors. It's very competitive. You have to publish a lot of things. And, but, but I did that for some years, and I was a Fulbright professor in Mexico and got really interested in the differences between the Mexican government's policies towards Central America and how they were dealing with the people. So they were very progressive when it came to policy, but they were kicking people out. And so I did what professors do. I wrote a book on Central American refugees, and then I was teaching. How, how did you come to to get your information? Oh, I, I traveled to the region a lot. I talked to refugees, to the UN, to a lot of non-governmental organizations or NGOs. How old were you at the time? I was uh, 29, maybe. And yeah. were you traveling as a, a female alone? Yeah, I traveled mostly alone. I, I got married in there and had two little kids, but I didn't travel, at least not then when the kids were little. But I was, I was teaching at a college in Pennsylvania, and one day a friend of mine called, and she said, Beth, our university committee is going to decide on research grants tomorrow, travel grants, and nobody's applied. Put in for anything, and you'll get it. It's amazing how much support there is out there when you actually start looking. Am I right? Like, I feel like I've heard this over and over. Um, yeah, how much support and uh, there is available. There is, and there are a lot of opportunities, but sometimes it takes a lot of energy to research those opportunities. Mm -hmm. this or one find just, them. This one just fell into my lap. Okay. And I thought, well, I'd spent a lot of time in Latin America, but I'd never been to Europe. So I said, I'll go off to Geneva and interview people. And I got the grant, and I went off to Geneva, and it was beautiful, and it was fun. And um, last day I was there, I went to the World Council of Churches, though I wasn't particularly churchy. They'd published some things I'd written. And I'm talking to this very nice man, and the sun is sparkling on the snow-covered mountains. And I said, it must be nice to live in Geneva. And he said, I'm retiring. Why don't you apply for my job? <laughs> so I got home, and no my way. husband and two little kids four and two, I think, uh, at the airport. And my husband says, well, how was Geneva? And I said, you want to go? And he said, yeah, let's do it. You know, and so, you know, it sounds all serendipitous, but I was taking a risk. I mean, I knew I could write books and things, but could I run humanitarian programs? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. And be, really be in the thick of it. And be in the thick of it? Could, mm -hmm. you know, could I, was, would I be good at that? Would mm -hmm. I like it? Would it you know, I had lots of questions. And I had a wonderful husband, you know, who was a clinical psychologist and could... You know, there are crazy people everywhere, and he could do lots of different things, and he was glad to follow me around. And when we got married, we agreed we'd take turns, but he never got a turn, you know, mainly because my job Which, possibilities... What do you mean, take turns at what? At moving for career reasons. Oh, gotcha. You know, doing my first teaching job, he went with me, and the idea was that he, we'd go for his job the next time, but he never got a turn, and he seemed very happy with it. So, so that made a huge difference. So we moved to Geneva, and I just fell in love with the work. That brings up a great question about how to balance career and family as a female. What was that like? I think when I was doing the balancing, it was probably harder. Now there are, there are lots of role models. There are lots, lots more sympathy by both men and women of what it's like to be a parent of small children, for example, and trying to you know, accomplish a lot in your work life. I think there's, there's more sympathy, more understanding, some better policies. Um, back then, I mean, I was lucky because, I mean, as I said, I had a great husband and a good job, and, um, but it's always a struggle. You know, you have, sometimes you always feel guilty. You feel you're not spending enough time with the kids, you're not spending enough time on work. What you, was it like for you? What did you decide to do when you had kids? Well, my, my husband was, was a main caretaker. I mean, okay. he stayed at home, and he, he was flexible. He could do things in the evenings and stuff. For me, I always had a lot of international travel. Mm -hmm. And when the kids were little, it was really tough to go off for three weeks. And it was hard on me to be saying terrible, terrible things. Um, and But I was confident, you know, he was doing a good job with the kids. And But, you know, you miss things. You miss you know, important things at school, and you miss miss a lot. Um, but, you know, I, th I think it was worth it. I um I remember listening to my, my four-year-old daughter at the time saying, you know, something like, um, well, Geraldine is just not my friend anymore. Well, well, why not, Sarah? And she said, she doesn't even care about refugees. Oh. And I thought, okay, you know, they're getting some good values there. They're or, listening to what you're doing. They're watching what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, they're really kind of proud of it, you know, and I go in and always talk to their school classes about what it's like. And, mm. and you know, kids have a lot of empathy. And so, you know, I always tried to draw some connections so they didn't, wouldn't feel totally abandoned. Awesome. But it was also really hard when you come back. I remember some of my first trips to Africa where, you know, the first time you see children who literally are starving to death. And right. you watch the parents and you... 
you know, it just really hits you. And I'd, you know, get off a plane after spending time in Ethiopia or Somalia or something. And, and you know, my beautiful children would come, you know, Mom, what'd you bring me? Mm-hmm. And you just think, oh, you little privileged child. You know, <laughs> you've always had enough to eat and medical care and safe place to sleep. And so there was created some inner angst, you know, in terms of realizing how privileged my life was. Right. Could you talk about some of those stories that you said? You saw some awful things. Um, anything that that you'd be willing to share that, uh, I don't know, reminded you you were in the right place or? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've seen probably the the worst part of humanity. You talk to mothers who've seen their three-year-old daughters raped to death in front of them or parents who've seen their kids tortured. Uh, you know. They, they were doing that. They still do that in countries. You know, a way to get the parents to speak is to torture the child. Oh. Uh, the mom could probably put up with it, but you know, you know take it on my, my three-year-old. I mean, seen, seen terrible things. You know, people who, you know, are dying of easily preventable diseases. If you just had some medicine and decent food and some medical care, I've seen terrible things. Um, for me, the the stories with the children are the ones that hurt the most. You know, when you see little kids who sometimes committed atrocities because they've been forced to, and you wonder if they ever recover. You know, a lot of refugee camps look like villages. There's not a, it's not scenes of horrible suffering. But I can remember going to some camps, you know, where everybody just looks like zombies, and you just realize how deep the trauma is. And but. I always found these trips depressing in one sense to see the terrible things people do to each other, and yet um, also always found things you could do. And that's the key. You know, if you see terrible suffering, you can't do anything, then you're just depressed. Mm-hmm. But if you see terrible suffering and you think, oh, I could raise a little bit of money, or oh, they just need this, or oh, what they need is that, or oh, if, you know, these folks back in the U.S. are looking for a worthy project, they could help these kids go to school. Or, mm-hmm. you know, so I was always thinking, what can I do? What can I do? How can I tell the story? And you know, I, I think filmmakers and people who are more artistic than I can can, can depict those stories in a way that mobilize you to action mm-hmm. and don't just make you feel terrible. Right. That leads to another great question, which is, how have you seen the most impact made? Has it been through filmmaking? Has it been through art? Um, is it through NGOs? You know, for people who, listening who would love to, to make a difference through the skill set that they have. I've seen a lot of really good grassroots initiatives where people happen to travel or have a connection and they see something that they can do directly, you know, whether it's marketing products, women make handicrafts things or importing coffee or sponsoring children to go to school at an orphanage. I mean, there are a lot of those things that have a tremendous impact and they're very personal. Um, I found for, for me personally, I, I think the greatest impact I've had has been on the policy level. Mm-hmm. Changing some policies can have a huge difference. Um, yeah, talk about that. What has been a process of changing policy? It seems monumental. Well, one of the things I did, I and mean, one of the things I'm proud of was back when I first began working in the field, probably the late 80s, early 90s. And this is after you, you moved to Geneva? Yeah, we were living in Geneva. Okay. And really involved very closely with the UN and a lot of the NGOs, non-governmental organizations. Um, I became concerned. I, was, I taught women's studies and was a longtime feminist, but I was really shocked at how little awareness there was of gender in all these aid programs. And so I worked. I put together a coalition of about 100 NGOs to really pressure the UN and governments to do more for women. And at that time, the, the standard line was, oh, we don't single anybody out. We treat all refugees the same. Well, all refugees aren't the same. You know, young kids have different needs than old people. And anyway, so I worked a lot on, on the policies and pressuring the UN to do more. What were your strategies of pressuring, besides getting all those groups together, what specifically? Well, we did a couple of things. One is that we sent out questionnaires to all NGOs, do women face particular issues of violence, for example, and the response was overwhelming. Over and over again, from big refugee camps and little ones, there was great, a great deal of violence against women within the family, by police, by a bunch of people. Then we organized a big a meeting of refugee women in Geneva, which is really quite the undertaking, you know, to get visas for all these refugee women oh, to you come. brought them to you? We brought them. And we brought them because we wanted the UN and the governments to see them, and they mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily go out. Well, that was really quite quite the meeting. You know, we had women who'd never made change before, and suddenly trying to figure out buses in Geneva. It was mm-hmm. really quite 
quite amazing. Anyway, we eventually got the policies. We got training in place, and staff had to do certain things, and you seemingly simple, obvious things. So we got a policy that every time the UN official went to a refugee situation, they had to meet with refugee women. We didn't tell them what they had to talk to, about. But just that process, you know, they went into Somalia, and the, the women were saying, well, you know, the latrines are too dark at night, and we get raped if we go there, and so we just go around our tents, and that creates a health problem. And the, the guys were just amazed. They'd never thought of that. And they figured out how to move the latrines closer, which isn't easy because there are a lot of physical things to consider, but, mm -hmm. but they could do it. And so the incidence of violence against the women decreased. And so seeing the, those kinds of changes made. Another big issue for women, still is a big issue, are sanitary products. These are not part of the standard humanitarian aid. And yet when women don't have sanitary products, they sit in the house for four or five days a month. The girls don't go to school. They're embarrassed. They don't participate. And so making that part of a standard aid package is a question of dignity mm. and affects the lives of hundreds of thousands of women. So, you know, my work has really been, at least after a while, after I've, you know, kind of gotten the field experience, has been much more in that policy level, how to make policies so that women aren't embarrassed to say, I need something, you know, I'm having my period. Yeah. So. Yeah, thank you. In, in your experience, you know, we've heard statistics now that I love are becoming more mainstream, which is if you empower the woman, everything within the community will get better. Right. Uh, even if, if we want to help environmentally empower the women. Can you speak to that? And were you part of, of getting some of those statistics out there? Yeah, I've collected a lot of statistics, um, both on women and on refugees generally. Um, but, but my sense is that refugee women are some of the strongest people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. They are survivors. For me, it's been such a privilege to work with them. And it's also caused a lot of introspection and realizing, could I have carried my three-year-old across the desert for three weeks? Right. Would I have been strong enough to have watched my husband and kids slaughtered? I mean, it really raises a lot of questions, and I feel like I've... I've grown a lot as a person. Yeah, just that's why I admire you, even for taking on this work. <laughs> that's been a... I just feel like I'm so lucky. I mean, to have gotten paid to do these kinds of things right. is just uh, amazing. I mean, uh, you know, when I was back teaching at the university, I would do my teaching, and then I would do my social justice work on the side. You know, it was always something you did in the evenings or mm -hmm. you know, different groups. And But this, I mean, to get to spend all your time, I mean, it was just... Just wonderful. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. How do you, what advice would you give to fundraising on behalf of more projects like this or to help empower? Because as you said, it's, it's so needed. In terms of fundraising, what works best and raises the most money is to show children in vulnerable situations. That really pulls at the heartstrings. Mm -hmm. And yet I think that we really do a disservice by depicting refugees always as victims. Mm -hmm. You can show strong women or strong parents, strong kids who are resourceful and you know, have lots to contribute. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's better, mm -hmm. and yet it doesn't raise as much money. Interesting. Right. A lot of the aid agencies really struggle with this. You know, the, the pictures of the starving babies raise a lot more money than those showing the empowered woman farming her her plot of land to feed her own family, which is what you want to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but let me just say another word about empowerment of a piece of refugee women. Um, we just need to get out of the way. I mean, they are powerful in their own right. And a lot of the inability to assert that power comes from these external obstacles. Mm -hmm. Such remember, as? Well, just not being given a chance to talk or to express what they want or to make decisions on their own. I remember a case also in Geneva when it was the 50th anniversary of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, and he brought in, um, well, he agreed to the suggestion to bring in 50 refugee women from different regions, and it was just wonderful. You know, they came in, and, and this particular High Commissioner, you know, was very condescending, and the TV cameras and thousands of people watching, and 
He said, um, and now we're going to hear from the youngest refugee woman. Now, honey, don't be too embarrassed or, or nervous. You know, we're all supporting you, you know. And I know this is probably intimidating. And she got up, a 16-year-old Ethiopian girl, and she said, I'm not in the least bit intimidated. I've been waiting my whole life to tell you what you're doing wrong. Wow. And she proceeded to say, we want education. We want education. That's what we need. That's what we want. And you know, right now in refugee camps, about half of refugees have access to primary school education. You know, twenty percent have access to secondary school, and less than one percent to universities. But you know, education just really opens doors, and, and women are very strong in asserting that if they have the chance. What are some of your favorite NGOs that you feel like are doing the most work? Um, and have some great strategies in place. There are some great international NGOs that people have heard of. I think Oxfam does good work. Um, international Rescue Committee, Save the Children. But I think that a lot of the small local NGOs that you don't hear much about, you know, the Kenyan Refugee Consortium, you know, does does fantastic work in their own communities and gets they get very little support. It's much more cost effective. You know, typically a salary of a on an international NGO is probably $100,000 a year by the time you put in benefits and travel and insurance and mm -hmm. so forth. And for, you know, a Kenyan, it might be 15000 mm -hmm. You can, you know, hire 10 people for the cost of one international, and all of that's much less than a UN staff person. So I really like supporting local NGOs whenever you can. Is, is the idea of uh, volunteer travelism, voluntravelism. <laughs> I, I know there's a term for it. Um, is that growing? And do you have any suggestions for, you know, like you said, so often it happens that people are traveling and they come across a situation where they, they can see the need and they can see where they might be able to help. Um, any suggestions for people that might be listening that are like, hey, I'd love to go travel um, and I'd love to, to, volunteer in some way and or be presented an opportunity to do, to connect with someone and have a real experience, a uh, real meaningful experience and, and also give back. Yeah, th th there are increasing opportunities to go off for a couple of weeks and work on a particular project, whether it's Habitat for Humanity, or there are just lots of them now. And I, and I think those you know, have a tremendous impact on the people who go. It really creates a constituency for supporting development work, for engaging with overseas issues. Um, and I think if you see it in that way, that's, it's tremendously important, having those personal connections. In terms of the actual work being done, it'd be much more cost-effective to hire local people mm -hmm. and give local people jobs. My daughter did that a couple of, a couple of times. She went off to um, Romania and worked in orphanages in the, I don't know, when was that? Must have been 2000s. Um, and it was a transformative experience mm -hmm. for her. But, you know, I, I look, you know, what can a 15-year-old girl do in terms of painting playground equipment? But the long-term impact was, yeah. you know, she's much more internationally engaged and, you know, concerned about children. And, you know, so I think it can be a transformative yeah, I experience. I went to India uh, for a month and, and volunteered for uh, a group that I met here in Telluride, actually, uh -huh. uh, 88 Bikes. And I, as a woman, went over um, and negotiated for uh, bikes to be built for children in two ashrams, a boys' ashram and a girls' ashram, which were the equivalent of orphanages, and bringing bikes to those kids that had been rescued from the slave trade absolutely changed my life. Oh, that's um, wonderful. And so, yeah, I would recommend any way that if you have some time and you want to go on an adventure, um, build some time for yourself for something fun mm -hmm. and build some time to give back and you'll never be the same. Uh, so talk a little bit about what you're working on now. Obviously, this this refugee yeah. <laughs> crisis, it, it, it feels so overwhelming. Um, what, yeah, talk about the situation and then and how you're working on it. Well, um, in 2016, my, my university, Georgetown, agreed to send me to New York for a year to work with the Secretary General to plan a global summit on refugees. Did your husband follow you again? No, I'm sure he passed <laughs> away before then. Oh, anyway, I'm sorry. It's really bad. But, but anyway, so I went off to New York for a year, and I'd worked with the UN, but never for the UN. And it was fascinating just to see the high-level political dialogue, what governments were concerned with, uh, 
you know, anyway, I, I really enjoyed the process, and, and so I've continued to follow it and to make suggestions. And sometimes I find that in the political environments, it's really helpful to have, you know, a university professor who doesn't have any territory to defend is kind of perceived as neutral. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of work on, on that. I'm still doing a lot of work on displacement in the, in the Middle East, which has been a lot of time there, so I enjoy that. I'm also increasingly working on environmental displacement and the kind of the challenges that is posing and will pose for policymakers and for communities. Can you talk about that environmentally? What specifically, what kind of displacement's going on right now? Is it water, sea level rising? Is it something else? Yeah, there, there are different kinds of displacement. A sudden onset weather-related disaster. Like is that the main one that you're flooding. dealing with right now? Mm -hmm. You know, that's displacing 15 to 20 million people a year. You know, Hurricane Harvey displaced lots of people. We think most of them go back quickly, but we really don't know. So, so there's that kind of displacement. But then there's the slower, you know, the, the drought and sea level rise, which is, you know, impacting some communities, but will impact many more in the future. And so getting, getting governments and communities to begin thinking about, what am I going to do when I can no longer live here? You know, where will I go? For communities, how do we keep our culture alive? What about, sorry to jump ship sure. a little bit, but what about the people that are still stranded? Uh, in, in Syrian refugees and um, that they can't go back to their countries, but they're not being let in, you know, to European nations. What, what can we do? Okay, when you're talking about people fleeing violence, conflict, like mm -hmm. Syria, the thing to do is to stop the war. You know, that's proving to be so complicated with mm -hmm. so many foreign interests and you know, hundreds of different militia groups. I mean, it's really complicated to end it. And yet, you know, the reality is now for Syria, all the borders are closed. Right. I mean, being a refugee is terrible. It's absolutely terrible. And these but people did nothing wrong. It's terrible, but it's even worse if you can't escape. Right. You know, think about Nazi Germany, where people who could not escape, you know, died. And, you know, the same thing we're seeing in places like Syria. You cannot get out of the country. Nobody will let you in. Mm -hmm. You know, I... It runs contrary to international law. You can understand neighboring countries that feel inundated with mm -hmm. large numbers of people, you know, a million refugees in Lebanon that had a population of four million. Mm -hmm. you know, we can't even imagine something like that. No. But neither can we imagine half of the po country's populations displaced. Half. You know, population, you know, 12 million people, a pre-war population of 21 million, mm -hmm. you know, are displaced. They're not living where they... In their homes, it's you know, uh, and of no fault of their own. They're no fault of their own, and you know, they're they, they can't go to a neighboring country, and you know, more distant countries like European countries are you know closing the doors. The U.S. isn't taking any, you know, it's just a, it's just a terrible situation. It's I think it's much more acute right now than those fleeing disasters or climate change, yeah. which is slower onset. I don't know if you follow the Rohingya situation with the refugees from Myanmar going to mm -hmm. Bangladesh, but. You know, they're stateless. They aren't, the government in Myanmar doesn't even consider them citizens. Mm -hmm. They consider them migrants. And so they have, feel no responsibility to take them back. And Bangladesh doesn't want them. So they're just kind of in limbo for, for a long time. So what do you see as the solution? Well, I think it differs a little bit in each situation. Course, but, yeah. but, but there, I mean, I think we ought to hold, hold the government of Myanmar accountable. And these are your people. You can't simply say, no, I don't want them anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, and that means really working to make sure human rights are respected. So it's, it's a massive undertaking, but, you know, the alternative is to leave a million people in yeah. limbo for years. And, and so know. is that where policy, you think, can have the most effect? I think it has to be diplomacy and politics and using tools we have to force a government to take care of its own people. Mm -hmm. As a woman, have you... Have you been taken seriously and, and your voice be heard, or has that been a challenge? I think it's taken time. I think there, there are a lot of women in the humanitarian world. Um, they tend to, just like most professions, be concentrated in the lower levels of mm -hmm. field workers, and when you move up, you find fewer and fewer women. I've, uh, yeah, I started writing a book on um, women in the humanitarian world, trying to compare the experiences of younger versus older women. But I've got interested in this because it seemed to me that there are a lot of kind of senior women, a few senior women, almost none of them had good personal lives. Mm -hmm. It was like it they sacrificed everything, everything mm -hmm. to work for refugees. And I found really quite a few women who were quite bitter in their 50s mm -hmm. or early 60s feeling like, 
You know, I never had a chance to have kids that I couldn't have it all back then. Mm -hmm. My male colleagues could. Mm -hmm. But I think women had really tough choices. Now I see women who, and I didn't have that problem so much because I had a wonderful supportive spouse, but um, but now I see women and really admire them who are demanding things that my generation didn't demand. Mm. We didn't demand, I don't know, leave to take care of a sick child. We took it out of our own vacation time or something. Mm. And, you know, women are right to demand these things. This is a social good, you know, it isn't like... Anyway, so I, I think that things are, are definitely getting better in part because women are more assertive and maybe men are a little bit more appreciative of the difficulties that they too face sometimes in juggling career and family. Do you find that it is more women working in humanitarian efforts or are there equal? It's probably equal? still more men. Okay. And men are, men are particularly... Uh, tend to have more expertise in logistics, which would be, you know, aid delivery and distribution mechanisms and construction of camps and siting of latrines, that sort of thing. You know, traditionally women have been seen as more as the social workers, mm -hmm. the nurses, the teachers, the nurturers. Um, you know, those are terrible stereotypes, but it still plays out a lot in the, in the career choices that are, are made. Are they, are they being represented in the, uh, up high in the... Not nearly as much, more. More. I mean, it's yeah. gotten better, but there's still, you know, nothing like 50-50. Right. Any advice for getting, getting more women up there, if, if anyone listening? <laughs> I think it's really good to hold top leadership accountable. The new UN Secretary General, well, he's been there for over a year now, uh, he made a commitment that he would put 50% of all top posts in the UN would be women. Wow. And it's taken him over a year to get to that point. And sometimes you have to wait for people to retire or move sure. on before you can name, but now he's got that. You know, which I think you, you need that kind of high-level commitment. And I think, frankly, then, on gender issues generally, you need to bring in the human resource component, you know, if... You need to hold, hold leaders accountable for mentoring women, for example. Mm. You know, if, if you can't show that you have actively supported and promoted women's participation, you should get less pay or maybe be fired. You know, if, if sexual violence happens in your office, I mean, I think you, the boss should be fired. I mean, mm -hmm. I think there has to be that kind of accountability before there'll be real change. Awesome. Those are, that's great advice. So, yeah, back to what can be done now <laughs> for the current, the current issues at hand. I think you can look at it on several levels, you know. Um, at the national level, you know, here in the United States, we, we have terrible policies on lots of levels, you know, whether it's the number of refugees being resettled, what's happening on the border. We've had in the last few weeks that, you know, taking children away from their parents and putting them in detention. Um, you know, a whole host of issues around immigrant integration, confronting the backlash against particularly um, people of Muslim faith, I think is just really, really scary to see what's happening in the U.S. And, you know, so I think that there are ways you can fight that on the policy level, you know, whether it's electing better leaders or pressing for a change in policy. You know, our, our representatives hear all the time from people who don't like foreigners, mm -hmm. but they rarely hear from those who say, yeah, yeah, we really like the refugees in our community. Or, oh, you know, I'd happen to know some immigrants working at my school, and they're really good people. Mm -hmm. You know, people don't take the time to write that. You know, they write about the, all the what nasty they're upset stuff. About. Good point. You know, so so taking the time to, you know, in these community forums, what are you doing for refugees and immigrants? You know, we're, I mean, so I think there are things that can be done on that level. And on the personal level, you know, just befriending or talking or smiling at immigrants and refugees, I think is is a great start. And finding opportunities to get to know them as people as, and not as numbers or waves or threats or mm -hmm. do you have any stories you'd like to you'd share about um about working with any immigrants or or refugees oh my I, mean, I, have, to I have tons of stories yeah. um I'm trying to think what would be most interesting for for you well i'll just tell some of the ones that really 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 hit me hard one was um when i was in geneva a woman from somalia came to see me, and she was living in Canada. She'd been resettled in Canada. And she came to see me, and, you know, I had a very nice little office, my coffee pot going, and the snow-covered mountains out the window. And, you know, she told me this terrible story of, you know, having her village been raided, and her husband is killed, and family members dead, and she grabbed her child, and she spent two weeks walking across the desert and drinking camel urine, and got to the border and with her two-year-old 
And she said, you know, her term was, you know, the border guards used me. They used me up, and my two-year-old was in the corner for four mm. days. She eventually got out to Djibouti, was resettled in Canada, starting her new life. You know, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, how could you, how could you do that and survive all of that? And then asking her, well, what, do you do? What, what can I do for you? And she said, I'm going back to Somalia. And I said, you're crazy. You got out of that terrible war. Why, why are you going back? And, and she said, I couldn't carry both of my children. Oh, my gosh. And that, and that story has just stayed with me. And, you know, she pulled out a picture of the baby. It was, I don't know, an eight- or nine-month-old baby. And uh, she said, I have to go back. And, you know, it's been a year or two, and kids change. And, and she said, I have to go back. I will, you know, knock on every door, go to every camp. Has anybody seen my child? And, you know, all these years I've wondered, you know, did she ever find the child? Mm. Would have I had the courage to do that, to yeah. leave a safe, comfortable? But anyway, just the, the personal agonies that some refugees have gone through. Yeah, for most of us, it feels far enough away where we can't quite relate. Right. But stories like that really hit home. Anyone could relate, I mean, could imagine. And that just seems... Right. I I can't even imagine. A more uplifting story. Um, At at that big UN meeting I, I mentioned where the 50 refugee women came from all over, I happened to be sitting next to a woman from Namibia who was the ref... from. An Angolan refugee in, living in Namibia, and since I speak Portuguese, I was helping to interpret for her. And uh, she said, "Hey, Beth," she said, "My um, the UN gave me seventy-five dollars pocket money for the week to, for incidental expenses." And I said, "Well, great." And she said, "You know, I was a school teacher back in Angola, but I, I wear glasses, and I lost my glasses when I had to flee, and that's been six or seven years, and I can't see." I can't read, I can't teach. And do you think I could use those $75 to buy a new pair of glasses? Mm. And I said, well, let me check. And I went home, and I just bought a pair of glasses in Geneva that were like $800. And so, you know, we had kids in college, and, you know, my, my 15-year-old daughter, I tell this story, and she says, are you kidding, Mom? Of course we will buy her glasses. <laughs> How can you? She said, of course. I mean, just her eyes just mm. sparkling with that. I mean, I just felt like a, about two inches tall, you know. <laughs> and she said, I will take her. I will take her. Dad will drive her, and I will interpret. My daughter doesn't speak <laughs> Portuguese, but I will take her. And so they took her down to the optician and got same-day delivery in Geneva. And they called, and I went out with the refugee woman to the to the street, and my husband and daughter pulled up with her glasses, and she put those on, and, you know, she just twirled in circles, Mm. saying, I can see, I can see, just screaming in Portuguese in the middle of downtown Geneva, Mm -hmm. and thinking, you know, what a gift it was to be able to do that for Mm -hmm. her, Mm -hmm. you know, and how right my 15-year-old daughter was to say, why are you thinking about money at a time like this, Mm. you know, so. Isn't that beautiful? And the gift it was for you, too. Yeah, it was definitely, I'm sure, yeah, meant a lot to all of us. We were all just, you know. Oh, sure. Why did you choose to learn Portuguese? I've been an exchange student in high school to Brazil, so I learned uh, Portuguese at an early age. And I think that's pretty good advice, too, if you ever wanted to work in humanitarian oh, work. Oh, it's great. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think those, those high school experiences, you know, whether it's spending a year in Brazil like I did or an overseas church mission trip like some kids do, and they just are life-changing experiences. You, mm-hmm. you see the world in a different way. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you have a lot of meaning in your life. A lot of, I think for most people, meaning might be hard hard to find. Um, would you agree, or or yeah. am I just projecting that? No, I think I think that's true. I think that there's a lot of, I think any time you work in social service or working with other people and you see the benefit of your work, um, it's just a tremendous gift. And I, I think you you begin to question, you know, your own values, your own lifestyle, and. And that, I think, makes you a deeper person, maybe not always a happier person, but it certainly makes you... You know, my parents used to... My, my parents were proud of me, but they used to joke, you know, my brothers and sisters all went into corporate careers. Mm-hmm. And so my mom would say things like, well, Beth, your sister Ann got a mm-hmm. SUV bonus this year. Mm-hmm. What have you got? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd, we'd always laugh about it. And uh, I think, yeah, I didn't get the SUV bonus, but I got the, the thrill or the satisfaction of thinking there... Yeah, you know, hundreds of refugee girls that have a chance to go to school because of something I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I was able to raise money for something, and yeah, you know, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for the for the world. So, what brought you to mountain film? 
this. And they called and asked me if I would. I didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. They called and asked me would I would I come and talk about refugees and migrants, kind of give a little overview, which I did. And um, you know, I thought I really believe in the power of film. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen you know my own perceptions of situations change from films that I've seen, and you know, and I think it's a powerful way to tell stories and make these abstract problems seem very human. Interesting. Um, are there any specific uh, problems where filmmakers might, it's, it's easier than ever, right, uh, to make a film. Uh, are there any specific regions you, you might send people to now to tell stories that need to be told? I, I think there, I would like to see more stories told about local responders. You know, the, the traditional media narrative of humanitarian work has been a white person giving a shot to a black African child. You know, there's something kind of paternalistic in those depictions. And the reality is that most shots are given by people from the community, local nurses. Uh, mm -hmm. The expatriates tend to have the director-type jobs, which mm -hmm. is n another issue. But, you know, I think it'd be good to show, you know, the, the way in which communities are responding to needs. Helping themselves. Th themselves, you uh -huh. know, instead of often having this narrative of the, the Western powers coming in and, and doing good. Day. Yeah, saving the day. Sure. Yeah. So I think some of those stories could be... I think some of the stories of, you know, I don't know, I hate to say, you know, refugees who have triumphed in their personal lives and gained recognition, like the Syrian Olympic swimmer, or the refugee team at the Olympics last time, I thought was great to have that visual image. You know, refugees aren't just victims sitting around, but they're, they're strong and very talented. And Beautiful. Yeah, I guess that was my next question, is, is what, what would be the narrative? And like you said, it depends on what your objective is. <laughs> if you're trying to raise money. Uh, but at the same time, we want to also create empowering, empowering stories. And also, uh, so my nonprofit, uh, She Jumps, one of our main focuses this this year has been to get more diversity into the outdoors, uh, show people of, of color, show people even um, working with refugees. Uh, and in one particular situation, we had a, we had scheduled, uh, so we have this program called Wild Skills, where oh. we teach intro to first aid, uh, wilderness first responder, uh, navigation, uh, all kinds of things to, to young girls uh, in, a, in a day camp. And we had, we put all of our resources into bringing this refugee group out. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's so foreign, right? The, the mountains is, is almost um, <laughs> this, like, white privilege, right. even camping, right? Um, right, is this idea of, like, well, why would you do that if you don't have to? Uh, and so we put all of our resources into bringing this group out. We, uh, we rented the van. We made sure there was plenty of chaperones. Um, and then at the last second, they didn't come. Oh, <laughs> and we, we had a, you know, we had a waiting list uh, of other girls. Um, and, and we were so, so bummed. And I guess I'm just wondering, I've been asking questions as to how we could make, make our worlds more accessible, more welcoming uh, to, to people that are, you know, aren't necessarily, they've never been exposed to, to our society or our, what we consider fun. And so it, for your, what would be your advice on how to integrate more um, with these groups that we're, we're just so different then, right? Um, just a, on almost every level. Yeah, I mean, I'm really sorry to hear that. It does sound like a great... Like it would have been a great experience. You know, in retrospect, what I, in all the questions that I asked and what we figured out is we needed to have more representation that looked like them to do the inviting. You know, if they didn't see, uh, if we didn't have a board member, if we didn't have a leader that looked like them who might understand, right. mm -hmm. um, they didn't, wouldn't feel safe. So, so we've really made an effort to make sure that that's, that's true as well. Um, I mean, you, you might think about just getting together with some of them and saying, you know, we, we're lo looking for some, you know, activities we could do together. What, what, what would you suggest? Mm -hmm. and, and maybe it's going to be something, something small. Maybe yeah. it's going to be, you know, let's cook a meal together or, you know, show us how to fix, I don't know, Honduran pancakes or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but usually there's a language barrier, too. Yeah. 
Is there anything universal that can bring us all together? I think cooking is a little bit universal. Mm. I mean, I think every culture I know chops onions. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, mm-hmm. and so there, there could be something around that, or something around music, or something around art that we don't need a lot of verbal skills. Um, yeah. I think you've also got to find some of the bridges between you and the refugee community, people who speak both languages, for mm-hmm. example, or, or that you get to know, and then they can say, hey, these people are really okay, you know? Yeah. When I went to India uh, and I worked with the, the boys were one story, um, but working with the girls was in a totally different region. It was actually much more dangerous. And, uh, and when we went, I wanted, I wanted to paint a mural with the girls. Mm-hmm. And of course, there was a language barrier, so... So we mostly only didn't get to communicate as much as I would have liked, but we did have a translator. And I wanted each girl to, I separated a giant wall um, into squares and said, mm-hmm. had everyone pick a square. And then said, I want you to paint into your square what you would like your life to look like. Mm-hmm. What, what, is, what is something you want for your life? A goal, um, a vision. And I didn't even realize how foreign that idea was. Uh, that that people even had potential control over their life versus, and I felt in some ways like, wow, who am I to even, you know, have I done anything good here or have I only brought, <laughs> uh, you know, more white privilege into a place that I clearly don't understand. Yeah. They couldn't even conceive of the idea of, of projecting into the future what they wanted for their yeah. life. I've had similar experiences in settings talking to women and girls who've been victims of sexual and gender-based violence and, you know, saying things like, you don't have to put up with this. You have a right to. Mm-hmm. And then realizing that, that sometimes feeling like they were empowered with those rights caused more problems. Yep, yep. And they were beaten even more when they'd come up with these ideas. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be, I think you have to be careful and sensitive even though... Yeah. So, so what good can we do? Because um, <laughs> in some ways, I wondered if I made if I caused more damage just by being a white girl in the presence, in their presence, and I'll never know, right? But uh, yeah. are you talking about India? A- yeah. a- anywhere that where it's so different, um, and we're, we can't just go be the saviors, <laughs> right? No, we no we can't, but. But sometimes, you know, you find out years later that you had an impact, not because of anything you did, mm-hmm. but just by being there. Just by showing up. It's just, just by showing up, just by being some kind of a model. I mean, I feel like that more and more in the time of Trump. I feel a responsibility when I travel overseas to make it clear that not all Americans are like him. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, a, there's a strong act of resistance and, you know, just feeling like um, someone's just, just showing up and saying things can... Yeah, come back to have an impact. Yeah. Have you found that your work uh, has has helped you in life? I know losing your husband. Yeah, it was pretty bad, yeah. No, um, definitely. I went to a retreat not too long ago when we were asked to write six-word memoirs of your life. Mm-hmm. Sum up your life in six words. And the, the words I chose were my life, colon, work, family, that's it. You know, I have very close-knit family, wonderful kids, had a terrific marriage, um, very fortunate, love, love my work. But, you know, I used to be an interesting person. You know, I used to, you know, dabble in painting and play musical instruments and do more than go to gym just to, you know, kind of do the minimum to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to do all those things. <laughs> and you, know, you have to make choices. And, you know, my choices were family and work and worked out really well for me, although sometimes I think, well, maybe one of these days I'll go back to writing poetry or learn to play the cello or something. Mm -hmm. What are you most looking forward to? What's next? I don't know. I I still, I I think I should be thinking about retiring, but I don't know. I'm still needed. I still love the work. I still love teaching now. I'm enjoying teaching a lot more than I used to, I think, because it's a chance to pass on some of this knowledge to the next generation. I really enjoy that a lot. And yeah. spend a lot of time with family. And um, So what advice would you give to people looking to potentially get into your line of work? If you want to work in the humanitarian field, particularly internationally, um, you have to have field experience, and that getting that very first field experience is the hardest thing of all. Once you have 
say, a year of field experience doing humanitarian work, and it doesn't even matter what country. Why do you say it's the hardest thing of all? To, to, because it's hard to get hired for that first position. If I'm an international staff person, I'm hiring international staff to go to Democratic Republic of Congo. I want somebody with a lot of experience sure. who's lived there before, who's not going to crack who up. Who might know and, the, the language, yeah, who can fend yeah, for and themselves. And mm -hmm. who can handle some of the cultural differences. Uh, you know, I'm not going to take someone for their very first job and hire them to go to DRC. But how do you get that very first mm -hmm. job? Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of strategies. You, know, you can go as an unpaid intern or a volunteer, or mm -hmm. you can, you know, something that's worked with a lot of my um, students is, you know, I really, um, really want to work in the Middle East, and I can't find a job in, from the U.S. to go there. So I'm just going to book a plane ticket and show up and <laughs> knock, knock on doors in Amman or Beirut or wherever, and you know, they all get jobs. Wow! And once you get Showing that up. first job, once you get that very first job, then you know people and you've got some experience, and you find out where the job openings are, and you discover, oh, I really don't like doing this. I thought I would, but I, I don't like this at all. Mm -hmm. You know, once you have that first first job, the rest, you know, it, all doors will open. And what about on the policy side? Um, my advice generally has been to get some field experience because then you're more credible when you talk about okay. policy. You, you know, I don't think you could have done, say, work on refugee women if you had never met any, you know, so I think you mm -hmm. need that. Although I've been challenged by some of my very good American colleagues working on um, policy issues here who say that communication skills and media skills are, are just as important, even more important than those international skills if you want to work on policy. So some combination I think is good. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. Oh, and, you're welcome. And I guess I always leave with one question. Uh, what advice would you give to your younger self at a time when she really needed it? I think I, I worked too hard. I think I um, worried too much. I, I, mean, I think women in, in general have a tendency to overthink situations. You know, what will happen if, if I do this? Or you know, I, I think I should have enjoyed life a little bit more along the way. And you know, just so conscientious, you know, in terms of reading everything and making sure I'm super, yeah, super prepared. But in part, you're competing in a, you know, competitive world, and it worked for me. But, you know, I think I wish I'd been a little bit more relaxed and taken a few more vacations. Hmm, beautiful. Thank you so much, and Are thank you, you for being here. Thank okay. you for your work. Okay. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing more and more of your listeners showing up. Love it. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, give us a review on iTunes. And if you are looking for that follow-up question where I give Beth a call and ask her about these recent images we've seen in the media, exactly what her thoughts are and how to best address this issue, uh, look for that again on my social media. So I'll put it on Facebook and if it's appropriate, I'll put it on Instagram but I'm waiting for Beth to be available. And I wanted to get this out as quickly as possible. So um, help us spread the word if you like what you're listening to, and we will see you soon, unicorns in the mountains, of course. Or maybe sometimes at the beach.